Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts. This is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 99. Last week we saw where Jesus was expounding on the statement that he said the week before last where he said, uh, so the last will be first and the first will be last. (sighs) And how most people think of that as, oh, the kingdom is upside down. Like those that have been made low in this life are going to be brought up in the kingdom. But uh, what we saw in the next parable that Jesus showed with the master who hired laborers for his vineyard is that it's more of a of an inequality uh, for access to the kingdom that regardless of whether the laborer was hired at the first hour the third hour the fifth hour or the eleventh hour they still receive the same wage a denarius uh, and we took that to say no matter the season of life that you are in no matter your relative level of growth spiritually, the access and the ticket to be able to enter the kingdom is still the same. That doesn't mean that there's going to be differing levels of uh, gifts and abundance and rewards in the kingdom. We're just prioritizing the access is open and equal to all. Yeah, and and then we weren't saying that the idea of the kingdom being upside down and one that's first in this world would be last in the next. We weren't saying that that was not relevant or not true in right. in other circumstances. It, it's just that in this particular one, Jesus went a different place. It was neat to see. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, that's it. We're the, the, the disciples, they're going on to a completely different thing. And this is another one of those, Samuel, where you got to remember, who's writing the Gospels? Uh, his disciples? Yeah. And we're about to see some unflattering stories about them. It's just, it's, it's so amazing to see that when it happens. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read verses 20 through 23. And in Mark, this is chapter 10, verses 35 to 40. And I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark. Uh, I, I don't know why that's always the case, but it is. Here we go. And James and John the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But... To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, 
but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Well, interesting things in here, huh, Samuel? Oh, yeah. And and you got to think, again, the disciples are writing about themselves. The, you know, this, this very, very interesting. But you, you will notice that there is no story of this in the Gospel of John. I'm just saying. Uh, but anyway, so interestingly, if we were to look at Matthew's text, he doesn't have the sons asking directly. He actually blames this on James and John's mom, Salome, or Salome. Yeah, yeah. Listen, it, it, I mean, I'll just read a bit. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him for something. She said, say that these two sons can sit, right? It's like, oh, man, who really did? I don't know. I don't know uh, why the, the accounts are so different, but whatever. Now, on one hand, let's at least say this. It isn't unreasonable to think that she was traveling with them. That, that, I mean, that could have been a real thing. But, Samuel, isn't it always just a little bit disturbing when the text varies so much between accounts? I mean, seriously. Definitely. Was it the two boys or the mom? That's weird, right? But we've addressed it before. And and this has turned out, like, like especially nowadays, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, whether you're a scholar, some sort of authority, some sort of expert, whatever you might be, if you know something about witness testimony, it has come to be popular or understood or believed that these discrepancies actually add to the authenticity of these accounts. And it's, I mean, you, you've kind of seen this like in a TV show or a movie or something. If all of their stories are exactly the same, it would suggest that it was more likely just contrived. It was practiced. It was planned. It was whatever. When there are discrepancies, everybody's perspective is different and the, their reaction to circumstances are different. And so it increases the likelihood of the genuineness when there are discrepancies, as long as they're not like, you know, so far off that you can't even find the truth, you know, or whatever. So anyway, there's that. Back to the request, because, I mean, come on, this was pretty bold. Grant us to sit on your right and your left. It wasn't just bold, it was uh, kind of ugly and outlandish. <laughs> I mean, all of these guys have been traveling around together, doing all these things together. I don't know. Out of all of humanity, out of all of the disciples, out of even the, you know, the twelve Put us to, you know, put us in the highest spots. Let us be, you know, the man, the right and the left. When you rule as king in your kingdom. I, I, it's kind of crazy. It's, and if we were to like change the language a little bit, it would be saying, hey, Jesus, give us privilege. Hey, Jesus, give us honor among everybody else. And, and it wasn't just that they asked. They asked it right in front of everybody. That's crazy. And just imagine, and I know this is crazy, even crazier, but imagine if he had granted it. Well, what would happen next? They'd probably be fighting over which one of them gets to be on the right and which one gets to be on the left, right? It, this is so out of bounds and it's so out of place, but there's a really good lesson to come of it. Now, uh, maybe 
Maybe. I'm exaggerating. You know, their level of arrogance or, or boldness or whatever. Or maybe not, but I mean, there had to be there had to be something in their heads that made them think that this was okay. And like, you know, we saw with the mom, we read it real quick, she was bowing down before him and all that kind of stuff. They, somewhere in this, they thought that they were still being reverent. They stopped, thought that maybe, you know, they weren't not being humble or what, I don't know. But boy, this story does not age well, if we could say it that way, right? Mm-hmm. But as many times as we, as we have seen Jesus try to be uh, I don't know, maybe a little grumpy or maybe a little salty or maybe a little harsh or whatever. In this instance, I, I don't know why, but Jesus, you know, he kind of tries to let them down a little bit easy. First, he lets them know that, that they really don't know what they're asking. And then, you know, kind of related to this, uh, maybe it's a little bit on the indirect side. He questions them about their their loyalty and their fortitude. Are they really going to be able to face what Jesus is about to face, this undeserved suffering and death, the martyrdom, all of that. And of course, again, looking back, we know in utter ignorance, they pronounce that, well, they will. Yeah, they can do it. Now, they may be imagining the cup and the immersion, you know, sort of this whole celebrating his new kingship, all of this good. And Jesus lets them know that, in fact, you know what? They are going to drink that same cup. And they're going to experience that same baptism as he will. And just to point this out, according to tradition, they were both martyred. James was first. He was the first one to be killed among the disciples. And John was the last. And then there's this traditional you know, caveat that John was martyred actually once or possibly twice. It just didn't work. It didn't take. He, he, like, in one case, he was boiled in oil, and then, you know, he walked away from it. You know, now, true or not, I don't know. These are traditions, but I'm just saying they experienced the same cup, the same baptism. But Jesus says, you know, you're going to experience it, but he adds, in spite of that, I still can't grant you that request. It's not within Jesus's purview, authority, power, whatever you want to call it. It's already been prepared. It's already been decided by God. And this is another great example. Jesus, you know, he's not God walking around in a flesh suit, per se. He, I mean, I'm not saying he's not God. He, he, he is, but, but he's walking around as a human. He has limited himself. He is operating with the Holy Spirit within him, all of that. And so what we're really seeing is Father and Son in unity, 100% unity, and yet with distinction. And it's very important that we see it. So anyway, there's that, Samuel. There's more to that story, though. What you got? I, I don't have a lot other than it just it made me think of um, when the gospel text mentions James and John as the sons of thunder. And <laughs> I wonder if if that has something to say about... Yeah, their personality and how it might be influencing this interaction between themselves and Jesus, like their their boldness or their bravery. Um, yeah, it's just there's probably more going on than meets the eye or the yeah, text yeah. reads. 
Yeah. And and it's I think it's really important to note. Did he scold them and say, Hey, you guys are being arrogant buttholes, cut it out? Nope. No. There there's, you know, a degree to which Jesus and I would say God he accepts, he likes all of the rich diversity of our personalities. Now, of course, for any of us, we can go too far with anything, whether that's, you know, aggressive or submissive or, you know, like fill in whatever opposite you want. We can do all those things. But, you know, we have room to be who we are. Some men are more aggressive or bold or whatever than others, and that's okay both sides. And you know what? Men are different than women, and that's okay. It's a, So all of this is good, and I think it's kind of neat to see that in the text. And weren't, weren't these the two brothers that asked Jesus, would you like us to call fire down? We have a winner! Oh, <laughs> you know, the exact detail has escaped my mind, but I think that you're right. I don't know if we should go look it up or what, but no, let's just go with it. That's our guess. <laughs> If we're wrong, we lose the grand prize. But yeah, that's true. Those guys, yeah. Yeah, they do get bold, don't they? Well, they really do. Yeah. So, so how do you think the others are going to take it, Samuel? Um, I would say not well. Yeah. Well, got news for you. We don't have to wonder. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 24 to 28. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 41 to 45. And I'm going to read from Matthew. So here we go. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does that remind you of anything, Samuel? I feel like I've heard that statement before. Yeah, all of a sudden, the first and last and, you know, Mm -hmm. the whole kingdom upside down thing. It's like, uh, all of a sudden, he's talking about that again. So it's so great. So great. Anyway, they're mad, right? No surprise. The others, they're pretty irked. And and you don't know, he might be irked at those, they might be irked at those two. They might be irked at their mom or all three of them. I don't know, however that works. It's sort of the how dare they kind of attitude. But to be fair, they were indignant because this was pretty unjust. This was this was wrong. It was out of bounds. It was distasteful. And let's just be honest for a second, Samuel. They also just might have been thinking to themselves, wait a second. I deserve that place more than you. <laughs> right? So it wasn't just that these two were bold and arrogant and asked out loud. That was bad enough, but you never know. Some of these disciples might actually have been thinking, wait a second, I'm better than you. So on one hand, this behavior is 
sickening to watch from the outside. And then on the other hand, it's possible that, you know, the rest of these guys, though they were rightfully offended, it's possible they may not have been all that different. And maybe no man in any time or in any place is really all that different than these guys. And so... It's just, it's a good life lesson, good thing. It's good to hold up that mirror occasionally, kind of see yourself. Um, It's just very, very human. And if you've ever had kids, watched kids from the outside, whatever, it's super easy to see in them. Now, the real question is, as adults, have we really grown out of it? Or are we just better at disguising it, hiding Mm. it? You know what I'm saying? So... I don't know. It's good good to see this, but nonetheless, they're upset. It's understandable. <clears throat> but Jesus remains, you know, pretty gentle. He calls the 10 over, so I'm assuming now all the 12 are together, right? He does, uh, however, instead of like, I don't know, rebuking anybody or whatever, he kind of gives, gives them all a better way, but it's a much more difficult way. He uses Gentile rulers as his example. And, and he says, look at him. It, this, you, you see this all the time. They exercise dominion and authority over those beneath them. It's a hierarchy. Everybody wants to, you know, be the boss over somebody else, all that kind of thing. And, I mean, as you see it in, in a lot of rulers, it was often very harsh. It was demanding. It was self-serving. And it often would enrich the one guy, the one who was the ruler, at the expense of the others. So it's ugly all the way around. Now, and again, we're trying to make the connection back to, you know, what exactly was it that John and James were asking for, right? And, and I think Jesus in his little talk here is kind of give us some, giving us some insight. Now, now, some suggest, and this is kind of interesting, you know, we know that we're near Jericho, right? We've just kind of been in Jericho, going through Jericho, something— the text, it gets a little back and forth, but we know we're near Jericho. So Jesus is possibly able to point to the actual winter palace of King Herod. They may have been in or near that location. And this thing, number one, it was a decadent monument to the man, but it was also a monument to the wrong way to rule. Herod would represent the epitome of the wrong way, whereas Jesus is the epitome of the right way. So, and what does that look like? What's Jesus's way? Well, his solution, his way is to act like a servant, or you might even say, act like a slave. Now, this is a good one. This is very important that you hear this. It's the idea of lifting others above yourself, their needs, their happiness even. Now, see, this is important because you are operating from a place of power. You are doing it by choice. You're not like submitting and subjugating yourself so that somebody else can just walk all over you. You are lifting others up, not tearing yourself down. It's an important little distinction there, but it's very good. And why are you lifting them up? What are you doing? You're, you're spending, if you could think of your life as like money, you're spending your life 
on others, for others, for the benefit of others. And, you know, sort of in the spirit of that that phrase, I'll never ask you to do anything I wouldn't do. You've heard that, right, Samuel? Mm -hmm. So, So in the spirit of that, Jesus uses himself as the example. They've seen his day-to-day life, and they will soon see what he's just told them about, this, this ultimate, incomparable king acting as a servant for all of mankind, dying for their sake, to purchase them from sin and death. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an awesome and cool picture. So what Jesus did... And, and I'm talking about, you know, his whole life story. It's amazing. And, and we should take the time to, to really take it in and be amazed by it, for sure. But we need to notice that it wasn't the only—it wasn't—how do I say this? It wasn't only the effective work of God saving mankind— That was obviously a big, huge, important part of it. But that's not all that it was. He was also an example for mankind, what God wants from you. Which, you know, ironically, it's it's for your benefit, and, and I would say more than his. But what God wants from you is that you think, that you speak, and that you act like Jesus. Jesus was a walking, living, breathing Torah. Jesus was walking, living, breathing God's will, will of God. He was the image of God here on earth. We need to be the image of God here on earth. You may not be perfect at it. That is okay. And yet, it can't be an excuse. You have to go for it with all that is in you. It's, it's to the best of your ability, and it's with the help of the Spirit. It is the only reasonable re- response that we can have to what God has done for us, for you, individual person listening to this podcast. Hmm. That's good. That's classic Jesus pushing the envelope to redirect the disciples' true priorities and calling from following him. Uh, Yeah. They ought to have been feeling some humble pie after (laughs) getting reminded, oh, uh, my purpose isn't to try to attain glory, it's to empty myself for the benefit of others. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and thankfully, nobody left alive today is anything like them. (laughs) Right? It's so us. It's so honest for the disciples to have written these things. It's just, it's good. Good, good. Anything else, Samuel? I don't think so. All right, big wheels are rolling, moving on. Where are we? Oh, boy. All right, yeah, okay, so here it is. Now it tells us that we're near Jericho. So, okay, we're getting close. Let's see. Oh, boy, this is a lot of text. Here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. 
and Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Okay, I'm going to read Mark. Yep, we're doing Mark. Here we go. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Oh, all right. So we've seen stories like this before, Samuel, right? Yeah, there's been more than one blind beggar. But do they ever get old? No. No? (laughs) It's cool stuff. So, okay, number one, let's start with, ugh, more differences, right? If you were to look in Matthew, it says, as they went out of Jericho. Mark says they came to Jericho, and then they were leaving. Luke just says uh, they were drawing near to Jericho. So what's that all about? So they're either arriving, or they're there, or they're leaving. Who knows? But whatever it's worth, uh, this is going to put them I don't know, maybe about a day away from Jerusalem if they were traveling kind of uh, 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 aggressively. It's about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So you can imagine that'd be a pretty tough day, but could do it. Uh, Now, we don't know. It's either one blind man or two unnamed blind men. Like uh, like the one we read, it was one and his name was Bartimaeus and in uh, Matthew's version, it's two blind men, and we never learn their names. So there's that. Uh, now, again, we're just going with this idea that this, this actually adds to the inherent authenticity of the accounts. So you could agree or disagree, but that's what we're going with. Makes sense to us. Now, here's another thing. They present it as if Bartimaeus was really his name. But I personally, me, Paul, I question that. And here's why. You have probably heard, Samuel, the phrase uh, Simon Barjona, mm-hmm. right? Simon, what that means is Simon, son of Jonah. And then what's, it, what's that phrase we always use? Uh, Messiah ben mm-hmm. David and Messiah ben Joseph, mm-hmm. right? So ben, what does that mean? Son of. Right, right. So the bar... Simon bar Jonah, that's just Aramaic. It means son of. Ben, Messiah ben Joseph, that's just son of, and it's Hebraic. So it's all the same. 
So think about it, Samuel. Bartimaeus. It's not a name. It's just Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus, which is really interesting because Mark then adds the clarification. He says his name was Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and then he says the son of Timaeus. And it's like, well, what was he? I mean, how could you say it? It's like I, like my dad, his name was William, right? Everybody called him Bill. So it's like saying, I am son of Bill, the son of Bill. It, it, doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's weird. He's Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. But I don't know. Maybe it was his name, son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus. I don't know. But it's just weird. It doesn't really teach you anything. There's no deep spiritual knowledge there. It's just another way to look at the text. For simplicity's sake, we're not going to worry about all these discrepancies. Uh, We're just going to act as if there was just one guy and it was this Bartimaeus guy. All right. So the point is, he's sitting by the side of the road. And then there's this commotion. So Bartimaeus is like, what you going on about, people? Right. He wants to know what's happening. So he finds out that it's Jesus of Nazareth. And it's, it's not some ordinary guy named Jesus, not just any old guy. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And so apparently he knows who he is. He makes up his mind that he's going to get his attention no matter what. We don't know how he could know who he is or whatever, but he does. But notice again, and this is this happens so much when we see these stories of people who are going to him for healing or whatever. He calls him son of David. He is, you know, very... Uh, sincerely and uh, without ambiguity. He's declaring Jesus's messiahship. But he's crying out, he's making all this noise, and people are kind of getting mad at him. They're telling him to shut up. But he just keeps on trying. In fact, the more they tell him to shut up, the louder and more crazy he gets. He just tries harder and harder. And here's the beauty. It works. Hmm. So Jesus stops and he calls out for him. Now, what's funny is the crowd who had all of a sudden been, you know, mad at him, telling him to shut up, all this stuff, all of a sudden they become very, I don't know, encouraging. You know, oh, take heart. He's calling you, right? And I'm sure if the blind guy could, he would be typing the unamused emoji right now. Mm. But I, I love the descriptive language of this guy. Once they tell him, hey, take heart, he's calling for you, he throws off his cloak and he springs up. I, I I just, I love that. This guy, he wasn't playing around. Wait, he called me? Boom, I'm out of here. I got to go see what's going on. And, and there's still room for, I don't know, some questions for here. I mean, if you're trying to paint this picture in your mind, you got to wonder. Jesus said, hey, call him. Well, did Jesus actually walk over to him? Or did this guy have to find his way to Jesus? I mean, remember, he's a blind guy. He's just yelling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Right? And they're going, oh, don't worry. He's calling you. So he springs up. And then where does he go? I mean, which way would you run, Samuel? <laughs> it's it's just an interesting way. You, you start putting these images in your head. And it's like, wow, I, I wonder what in, actually happened there. So we see a... Uh, a similar strange kind of uh, interaction with the tend 
the 10 blind men in Luke 17. I don't know, Samuel, if you remember, this guy, they, they did the same thing. He's asking for mercy, which would normally have meant, hey, can you, you know, give me some sort of charity? I'm a blind guy. I can't really make any sort of living on my own. You know, can you give me money or something? But this time, see, with the 10 blind men, Jesus just made the assumption that what they wanted was healing. That's what they meant when they said, have mercy. But Jesus doesn't assume that this time. He makes this guy say it. Now, another interesting point, in in Matthew, Jesus touches the eyes of a couple of blind men. In Luke, with the 10 guys, he just commands that there's—well, he doesn't even command it so much— tells them to go see the priest, whatever. Uh, But he just talks, their sight returns. And in Mark, he just tells the guy to, you know, go away. You remember what it said? Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, go your way. (laughs) And your faith has made you well. That's all he says. I mean, basically tells him to go away. Super weird. So in Mark and Luke, Jesus declares that it is the man's faith that has made him well. And of course, you know, Samuel, we've addressed this ongoing tension of exactly how it is faith works or doesn't work and who's involved, the the person or somebody on their behalf, or do they need to be involved at all or whatever, all these miraculous works. And our our end result, the, the thing that we always come to is, look, in all of this, what we need to see most importantly is the encouragement to have faith, walk in faith, all of that, and and then let God work out the rest. But this is also interesting. Remember what he said, go your way, your faith has made you well. So what does Jesus want this guy to do, Samuel? Just, uh, I mean, he wants his, wants him to live his life with sight now? Yeah, just, just go do what ordinary people with sight do. He didn't invite him to be a disciple. Remember, he did that recently with that rich young ruler. What the rich young ruler do? Oh, he went away. He uh, went away. Sad. Yeah. And so Jesus tells this guy, hey, go your way. But what does this guy do, Samuel? Can you read that at the very end? Yeah, it says, uh, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Yeah. He wasn't even invited. And he (laughs) followed him. Right? I think that is super cool. Super cool. So all the accounts have the blind man or men or whatever following Jesus. And it affects the crowds as it should affect us, right? They think it's awesome and, you know, amazing. And and here's an interesting note. The dude had more than one option. I mean, he could have done exactly what Jesus said, go your way. But he doesn't. He chooses to follow him. He chooses wisely. And think about what he's saying. Jesus said, go your way. And this guy is saying, you know what? I am. My way is now following you. Now, (laughs) I don't know. I just think that that is amazing. And and you can go back. It would probably be good to do a, a... more complete comparison between this guy and his story and the rich young man and his story. I bet you could find more cool comparisons. But in this case, if nothing else, I could, you know, I could say, Samuel, that this is an actual 
cool story, bro. Know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now, there's just one more thing I wanted to add in here. Kind of fun. Uh, Daniel Lancaster. He's the guy from FFOZ and Beth Emanuel. Super cool teacher. He points out that this story has special significance here in Mark's gospel. And now it's harder for us to see because we've been trying to go through all of the gospels together across time rather than focusing on an individual one at a time. So in Mark's gospel, throughout the gospel, Mark has used stories of healing the blind and, you know, maybe the deaf and and the mute and, and others, whatever. But he's using these stories as symbolic of the people of Israel. Israel, the nation, was blind, deaf, mute, etc. They were unable to see and recognize God's Messiah, God's salvation, and therefore they didn't repent. Now, Samuel, was that every single person in the nation? Nope. No, but generally speaking, the nation did not accept him, and especially the leadership. And so, Jesus's acts of healing represented Jesus's struggle against the unrepentant nation. But this final story, though, has the blind man fully recognizing his messiahship and following him. Mm. So, it's not just a cool story, bro. It's an even cooler story, bro. <laughs> that is cool. So cool. And Paul, did you know that they um there's a song written about this uh this blind guy? No. Sing it. Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to do the hand motions and the tucker, 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 tucker. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But on on a more serious note, um, wait, you were being serious? <laughs> if you look it up on Google, you might be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just popped in my mind while we were going through this. Uh, this blind beggar reminds me his uh, persistence at calling out to Jesus even more, despite the opposition from those that were around him uh, a phrase came in my mind like I will not leave until you bless me and I was like where oh. is that coming from and then I realized I looked it up on Google real quick it's from Genesis it's yeah. Jacob yeah. Uh, Genesis thirty two twenty six, when Jacob is wrestling in some ways the angel of the Lord God himself and yeah. daybreak is coming and the man, God, says, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So I wonder if Jesus, like, you know, he's the living Torah. I wonder if he has moments like this. Where he's like, man, that, that reminds me a lot of Jacob. Like, this guy's tenacity and his faith. Like, yeah, he, des- he, his, he deserves to be uh, rewarded because he's emulating one of our forefathers. Yeah. Oh, I tell you what, Samuel, there are a bunch of stories throughout your entire Bible where someone acts with some sort of 
tenacity like that, and there is reward for that. Now, I'm not telling you that it's a formula. I'm just saying, if you were going to pick a way to be, that's a good way to be. So, yeah. Uh, What else you got? No, that's it. Okay. Well, we are about to enter into one of those classic fun stories. Uh, I think it's like Sunday school fodder, you know, all that kind of thing. We are going to have the story of Zacchaeus. So, you ready? Yeah. All right. We are in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. All right. Here we go. Now, remember, uh, in Luke's version, they've only been drawing near to Jericho. So here we go. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So He hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Oh my goodness. This is this is real life stuff, Samuel. Mm. So, now, point number 1, this only appears in Luke. And again, as we mentioned, at least Luke is consistent. Jesus had only been drawing near to Jericho and so now he's passing through. But we get introduced to this guy, Zacchaeus. Now, he is Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish, whatever. And he's a tax collector for Rome. And he's not just a tax collector. He is a chief tax collector. So how do you get to be a tax collector? That's a, that's a good question, right, Samuel? Well, here's the thing. As a general rule, you got to be the worst among men. I mean, you, you just have to be a bad guy. And how do you get to then be a chief tax collector? Worse than that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You are the worst of the worst. It's just, I mean, it's it's a bad thing. Tax collectors, like from the from the nation's perspective, they were considered to be traitors. They were working for Rome 
collecting taxes from the Jews, the Israelites. And, but then, not only that, they used their position to enrich themselves, right? It's like, if their tax was supposed to be, just pick a number, uh, a denarii, a denarius, they might, they might tell the guy, hey, it's time for your, your taxes. How much do I owe? Two denarii. What? I thought it was just one. Nope, it's two. So he would send one to Rome and keep one for himself, or, you know, things like that. That's how they would enrich themselves. They were stealing from the Jews, so even more of a traitor. And it tells us Zacchaeus was rich. He not only had done all of those things to Jews, but now he did it through others. He was probably stealing from other tax collectors, too, mm. or, you know, uh, whatever whatever the right word is, taking taking cuts, whatever. But here, here's the crazy thing. Here's this guy. He is, I think, in every way, we should imagine him to be a very horrible person. But Zacchaeus hears about this Jesus guy, this Jesus character, and he wants to see him. We don't really know why, but in some sense, he wants to see him just like everyone else. There is a bit of a spectacle to Jesus's life. He had a problem, though. In addition to being hated... He was just short. I mean, this dude was a small guy. I don't know, but it's important to the story. He was. So if there was a crowd, and there was, he couldn't see anything. He's walking around in a crowd. All he can see is people because he can't see over, around, through, nothing. He's just stuck. So he can't see Jesus unless they're face-to-face, or I guess in this case, it would be like face-to-chest, whatever. But he has this idea, and I'm guessing it's not the first time he's had this idea. He thinks he knows which way Jesus is going to be going, and so he runs ahead and he climbs into a sycamore tree. Now, I'm not a big tree guy. I don't know a ton about it, but I know that they're related to like the fig and the mulberry, that kind of thing. And so just in terms of what do they look like, well, they they spread out pretty far. They've got a big canopy, and so there are lots of good, strong, horizontal kinds of branches. And, you know, I mean, I've read, I don't know myself, but a bunch of people say it's easy to climb. Okay, maybe it is. Yeah, if you're here in the West, it is a different sycamore tree than what we see here in Kentucky or good the point. United States. It's, yeah. It is a different species. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad you said that, Samuel. Uh, so he runs, he climbs up this tree, and why? Because he wants to watch everything from above. He just wants a really good seat for the spectacle. And it totally works. Jesus goes exactly that way, walks right underneath him. But here's the thing. Jesus takes notice of him. And he calls him down. And I don't know if you noticed, Samuel... He called him by his name. Hmm. How did Jesus know that? That's a good question. Yeah. So again, you know, we, we do see those God attributes, the things that the Spirit is doing in Jesus, the human, all of that. It's, it's good. But he calls him down by name. And he tells him, hey, hurry up, because uh, I need to stay at your house. Now, Samuel, if you had stopped reading right to that point, you didn't know the rest of the story. Do you think that Zacchaeus has any expectation 
that Jesus is going to stay at his house? No. Talk to him. Nope. Even notice that he's laying across a branch in a tree over his head. (laughs) That's a negative. Yeah, probably not. Zacchaeus's only expectation, or at least we can imagine, is he just gets to see the guy. He wants to see who he is. What what's going on, right? So Zacchaeus, I mean, you he loves this. This guy singled me out of, out of this whole crowd. He wants to stay at my house. This is awesome. So he hurries down and he takes him to his house and uh, you know, Zacchaeus, again, he's rich. He's probably got a lot of people working in his home. He's probably got people scurrying every which way, trying to bring out the best of everything. Because, I mean, in his life, Samuel, this is easy, easy three sentences. Best day ever, right? And, I mean, okay, I had this image when I was doing my study. Have you ever seen that scene from the Beauty and the Beast cartoon where they do the Be Our Guest song and dance? Mm-hmm. Right? Be that, our guest. Yeah, Be yeah. Our guest. That's probably what's going on at Zacchaeus's house. Yeah, They're going well, crazy. Put, putting him being a terrible human being aside, like his culture showing hospitality to other people yep. is, is a great honor. Uh, so... That would have been at play here just because he was Jewish and he was living in that time. Yeah, yeah. So this is all great, great stuff. However, pretty much this entire crowd would have been disgusted by this. I mean, Zacchaeus, as a as an individual person, and then we could just say as a character, some chief tax collector guy, whoever, universally hated by the Jews. And they would want to see nothing more than judgment for this guy. He should be scolded, punished, whatever. It should be bad, not good. But Jesus hangs out with him at his house. I mean, you know, kind of all buddy-buddy. And here's another important point. This is Jesus, great teacher, God's Messiah in many people's minds. And here he is enjoying the filthy lucre of a tax collector. What is up with that? What Messiah would ever do that, right? This this is a challenging image for all of these people. Now, on the other hand, though, Samuel, this is an amazing picture of God. Remember, Jesus is a walking image of who God is. This is an amazing picture also of evangelism. Ever think about doing evangelism like this? (laughs) Right? It's an amazing picture of mercy and love and forgiveness and acceptance and fill in whatever words you can think of there. And all he did was become this man's guest. And Zacchaeus saw it all for what it was. You got to figure this guy, okay, maybe never, or maybe not for a long time or whatever, this guy probably didn't know a whole lot of love. Or, you know, it could be 
that he may have had something good when he was younger, and then for whatever reason he had rebelled, maybe maybe kind of like the prodigal did or whatever, and then that led him to this place where he was stuck in this life as a tax collector or, or something. I mean, we don't we don't know Zacchaeus's story, but he had he had become this bad gay, and now here was someone who was showing him acceptance and honor and all of that stuff, and he liked it. In fact, he liked it so much that it moved him to repentance. Samuel, is that a mathematical equation that makes sense to you? Be nice to me and I'll repent. Mm. I didn't. That doesn't seem like it works that way. It's weird, right? It, it's odd. We don't think of it that way. But I'd like you to read Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? <laughs> yeah. Why does God continue to be kind to mankind? Why does he do that, Samuel? Well, the text right there says he wants repentance for us. Yeah, that's why he does it. He doesn't do it because, ah, you know, basically underneath, you're you're a cool guy. I like you. Here, let me give you a little noogie on the head. No, he is, he's continually kind because he wants people to recognize his truth, his will, and repent, live as an image. Which, again, ironically, it's for our good. So, but Zacchaeus, he is the picture and the image of this. He was shown kindness and he responded with repentance. And what did that repentance look like? Well, the first thing he did was give to the poor. He said, you know what? Half of everything I have, I'm just going to give it to the poor. Well, that's, that's a lot of stuff. But then he says... And for everyone I've ever defrauded, I'm going to pay back four times. Well, we don't know this. We don't know the exact math. But it could be that that represents the other half of his wealth. He could be saying, I'm going to give half to the poor. I'm going to use the other half to pay back everything I've done wrong, which is going to leave me with... Oh, yeah, nothing. So uh, this, this whole thing, and here's another part. He was Jewish. He probably had training growing up just like everybody else did. He knows that he's not required to pay back fourfold. Fourfold was way beyond what was required in the Torah for most cases, and most probably all of the cases that Zacchaeus would have been involved in. It would have been more like, hey, you need to pay back what you stole plus 20%, plus a fifth. That would have been the most common. There were some things where you had to pay more, sometimes double. And then I think, I don't know, it's like a, maybe it's cattle rustler, sheep rustler, something like that. They had to pay back four times or something. But I doubt that Zacchaeus was doing that. But he chose the biggest form of restitution, fourfold, the greatest amount that he could repay and Again, we don't know this for sure, but it may have cost him everything to do this. 
And as if we haven't done this enough already, Samuel, I'd like you to now think for a moment back to the rich, young Mm. ruler. And what did he do? He had great wealth, and when asked to give all his possessions to the poor, he went away sad. Yeah. So so think of just the contrast between those two. Now, he was specifically told, give away everything. But in this case, I think it is at least reasonable that it may have been that Zacchaeus was giving away everything, but he was doing it voluntarily. Mm. This, this is super awesome. So anyway, Jesus recognizes all of this as true repentance. And so he announces that salvation has come to this household. So, and that is to say, on one hand, Zacchaeus has been saved. He is no longer lost. You could also look at it as salvation has come to this household, meaning Messiah has come to the home of Zacchaeus, right? You could look at it both ways. But, and it wasn't long ago, Samuel, I don't know if you remember, Jesus had made clear how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And yet, here's this rich guy. Apparently, this camel made it through the eye of that needle. Hmm. It just happened. He affirmed that Zacchaeus was indeed a son of Abraham. This is cool language also, because he wasn't saying just by blood. Sure, he was a Jew by blood, but he was a son of Abraham, meaning he was like Abraham. He was acting like Abraham in his hospitality and in his generosity and everything else. So for this outcast, this was all a big, big, big deal. And, and I mean, you know, side note, what is the, the crux of Jesus's ministry, his mission? It was to Israel and it was to the lost of Israel. Israel. That's who Zacchaeus is. So let me read one more thing for me, Samuel. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. You know what? I'm going to confess I lied. One more. (laughs) (laughs) Read Ezekiel 34, verse 16 also. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. <laughs> now, Samuel, okay, if you were back and actually reading in Ezekiel, you would see these passages are speaking specifically of Yahweh himself. I get that. But what is it saying about him? It, it, he is for the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus sees this as his own mission. And again, we know that Jesus is God, and yet we also know that he is distinct in in some ways from God. He sees God's mission as his own mission. And it's another example of his equality with the Father, or maybe maybe the better word is his unity with the Father. But this is such a great story. Zacchaeus is... He is the man, what he was willing to do, and only because of a little bit of kindness and and, and, uh, acceptance, that kind of thing. What a lesson for us. For sure. Um, I did want to ask, whenever Jesus is saying, like, hurry up and come down, Zacchaeus, for I must stay at your house today, should we envision 
Jesus's disciples coming into Zacchaeus's house with him yep. as well. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. In fact, I think we're going to talk about that as it's coming up. Uh, I'm. I mean, I think it's reasonable to think they spent they spent the night. And I think it's reasonable to think that some of Jesus's entourage was with him. And, you know, Zacchaeus probably also had some friends among other outcasts, whether they were other tax collectors or whatever. He probably brought some of them in, too, just to go, hey, guys, I got this cool guy at my house. You got to come see. Because mm. it just made him feel even that much more special or awesome or whatever. So, yeah, I think so, Samuel. Right. Which leads me to this point and it's not trying to diminish that it was solely Jesus's kindness that led to Zacchaeus's change of heart and lifestyle uh, in his repentance but you have to think if he really did stay if Jesus really did stay in Zacchaeus's household for that long like overnight there ha- had to have been conversation oh, uh, that yeah. that happened that oh that the gospel accounts don't have uh, written in here for one reason or another. So, yeah, like, we can only speculate and envision, hypothesize what some of those conversations would have been like. Jesus could have done some teaching. Yeah. He could have, like, pointed out more things about Zacchaeus's life that Jesus would have never known uh, other than being, like, Son of God, Messiah, that showed Zacchaeus like Jesus's power and authority right there were probably other factors at play too within their conversation that led Zacchaeus to say like I've got to give I've got to do everything to make things right because this Jesus guy is like the real deal like oh yeah yeah I think you're absolutely right and I mean who knows it could have been conversations it could have been teaching it could have he could have done miracles maybe he healed somebody or something we don't know i'm i'm of course exaggerating and being silly maybe zacchaeus grew an inch or two (laughs) i mean i don't know right yeah but you're right we don't know everything that happened and i'm i'm being you know super uh focused on just what we see in the text you're totally right but yeah it's it's amazing and then even then though you got to think okay so how many other people were there that in in Zacchaeus's life that have ever talked about God or you know whatever it might be? He didn't listen to them, but he listened mm-hmm. to Jesus. And so even then, you could go back and say, well, what was it that made him actually listen this time? And then it's the well, the acceptance, the you know the, the whatever. I don't know. It's it, it's cool, cool image. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Uh, no, other than I've just got this weird Lord of the Rings. Uh, scene in my brain with Zacchaeus where in the two towers when they're at Helm's Deep and Gimli and Legolas are sitting next to one standing next to one another at the wall and Gimli can't see and he's like I can't see anything I can't see and Legolas is like shall I describe it for you or shall I get you a box (laughs) that That is that is a great image Zacchaeus he's a he's a shorty but hey that's I, well, all right. You know what? We're actually over time. We need to stop. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. 
You can find out more information about us and the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And please feel free to send us any questions or comments you may have at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.